Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Every year, this is one of my favorite events. It's so exhilarating to get to hear new voices, and it makes me so proud to be from Los Angeles, where we have one of the very best MFA programs in the entire country, and I look forward to stocking all of your debut books here in the store. Um, it's always a bit overwhelming to realize how many people in the store come from your program. Um, Amy Bender, Richard Ford, Joshua Ferris, Michael Shabon, Alice Siebold, Maylee Malloy. We've got um, incredible success on every shelf from one place, and I'm delighted to hear um, the next generation. Um, in fiction, we've got Blake Kimsey today and Justin Lee, and in poetry, Josh Cornwell and Megan Cooney. Um, let's give them a warm round of applause. Hello, <clears throat> excuse me. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our final off-campus reading in our MFA uh, reading series for this current year. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Skylight Books. This is easily one of my favorite independent bookstores in the LA area. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, as we have said, we have four readers tonight, fiction writers Blake Kimsey and Justin Lee, and uh, poets Megan Cooney and myself, uh, Josh Cornwell. <laughs> I'm going to move straight into introducing uh, Megan Cooney. Unfortunately, the person who had Megan Cooney's intro prepared today has not been able to make it up here, so this is going to be really short and sweet. Please welcome Megan Cooney. She's a first year in our program. Uh, she's a wonderful poet and a wonderful human being, and I'm really excited to hear stuff tonight. Thank you, and excuse the brevity. This is so professional. And now I'm going to put this, like, way too low for everyone else who's reading tonight. And can I put these on the ground so I can put my folder on. <laughs> Hello. Can people hear me? Good. It's a really not loud. Okay. So, um, I'm not going to try and pretend that I'm write anything happy. Um, so, I'm just going to launch into a poem called Grief. <laughs> Grief. My father, nearly blue from crying, caught the first snowball smack on the head. It was thrown by the oldest son of the brother he was burying. As we stood waiting for the groundskeeper to come unlock the cemetery gates, the current that ran between us, built to a frenzy until all of us were flinging fists full of snow, peals of laughter cracked at our frozen bodies, wool hats lay strewn, half buried in the brilliant white of the lawn. Um, this one is called Pantomime. Pantomime, 
The whole way up to Acadia, I thought of past summers to stop myself from crying. The season so ripe with berries, I filled tin after tin before mom and dad would let me in for supper. It had been two weeks since their breakup. Mary Alice sang songs instead of asking questions, made a show of stopping at lookouts to take pictures. We spotted two turkey vultures circling toward already dead prey, a muskrat peeking up from his hidey hole, blueberry brush gray as a fisherman's beard. She took snaps as I watched fields of goldenrod blur together and send their haze of pollen up into the sky. Uh, so I didn't grow up in California, maybe you can tell. Um, I moved here from Maine, um, and I have a, like two more sort of Maine-y poems. Um, and an important little fact for this one is that um, on pine cones, the ridges that are on them are called scales. So I'm not like talking like Libra scales, like so yeah. Um, it's important that the word's not confused there. Um, after Evelyn, after Evelyn, Gramps on the back porch fills a watering can, loops halfway around the yard before setting it to rest on the front steps. He has bought a new tablecloth, is loyal to the idea of tablecloths, keeps spare dishes in the cellar, muffin tins in the microwave, burns water as if to boil it, he has forgotten to change the sheets, which smell of bag bomb, mouthwash, and stomach pain. But the bird feeders are full. A spare key hides at the bottom of a basket that brims with pine cones. The scales she painted white are still white, caught in a snow that won't melt. So... My snow motifing is now over, um, but uh, I have one more main poem. It's really narrative, and it's uncreatively titled Portrait. Portrait. Uncle Arnold buys me fake turquoise jewelry. He sends candles, spreadable cheese, emails suggesting Obama is a Muslim always calls me afterward to ask for thanks. If I protest, he claims he likes to flirt with the woman at the credit union who shows the candles, says, my house is overrun with the things. You're doing me a favor, taking a few off my hands. I place one in every room, but never light them. When his dog, Babe, dies, he throws his back out, chopping wood. On the phone, he says, it was time. She couldn't even make it up into the trek bed no more. Was using piddle pads instead of going outside. It's she and him on the Christmas card that year. He misspells my name, but it gets there anyway. Same mistake he made years ago across the front of the toy box he built me. There's a speck of lead lodged in his forehead. He was building machinery when a scrap from the sheet metal sparked off and caught him. Fitting, I'll carry a bit of the mill to my grave, he says. Like he says, hippity hoppity, it's Easter to my voicemail every year. And you leave the boys alone. And I've already got my headstone picked out. Real simple, like... Same as mom and dad's, I don't need nobody making a bother over me. Okay, so gear switch. Um, to rape. Uh, not funny, but 
um, specifically the rape of Lucretia, um, which for those of you who don't know um, is a story from Li um, Livy's histories about why the Roman Republic was founded um, to get rid of the monarchy and the reason for this is that an early Roman king, Sextus Tarquinius, uh, raped Lucretia who was the wife of one of his councils. Um, and after hearing this, after he did this after hearing of her virtues and watching her weave, and she uh, killed herself in response. Also, fun Latin note: um, Veni Vidi Vici. In Latin, the W's are pronounced like V's are pronounced like W, so it's like Weni Weedy Weeki. So there's some Latin in the poem. So just so you know, the rape of Lucretia. In sixth grade Latin class, it was just us girls, growing stems, sitting in rows, neat as the braces across our teeth. We conjugated verbs in an order, one molestare, meaning annoy, appeared in our textbook every chapter. The sentence that came with it, sextus, molestus, lucretia, was always met with laughter, it bubbled up from our lungs, clean and pink. Later that year, we started to translate the rape, sat down at the loom and thought to become occupants of her virtus. But the word had its root in we're, in man, not woman, and so we were bound saw dark threads gather as she tied each string taut against the heddle rod, felt her repeated motions pull at his groin, then the failure of the warped warp weights she used to keep her weaving free from tangles. This was our introduction to male desire. Um, and this one is about how to precipitate a breakup. Um, and it's called Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy. The thoughtful way visitors place clean glasses in the wrong cupboard, or a lover cooks a meal with an allergen, gestures of care I can't leave uncorrected. Tick marks against a concept of perfection. I've been building a stacking tower of wooden blocks, have kept the whole unsteady because I wanted you at attention, didn't like the way your eyes moved over me lazily, how you failed to notice when I got two inches off my hair. I just wanted you to ignore your own desires, buzzing like flies around a bowl of rotting fruit. I don't much like them down my throat, but it's not very polite to leave your pubic clippings all over the toilet. I'm meaning to make a mountain of a molehill, so take your dirty work boots from the rubble heap you've left on my lacquered floor. Okay, so we're officially in breakup poem portion of the of the poems. There's only one, one, one more. Yeah, um, I'm sure you're all thrilled. <laughs> um, Things to know for this one, um, exsanguinated uh, means drained of blood. I know, it's getting, shit's getting grim. Um, so, this one's called All in All. I'm gonna take water. All in All. The car seizes up around Arizona. It's a slow stall out across the white line into the breakdown lane. Standing by the road, the sun sends needles through our eyes. And in our cheeks, the same small vessels that cause a blush are dilating. What is occurring is an accident in coloration, as if someone has spilled red on white and can't blot out the stain fast enough. 
And so my clumsiness, he says, all I asked you to do was refill the oil, sends the blood in his face rearing. Now all I can do is make a move away, turn my head to watch some desert bird swoop and miss. Out past the median, I watch him place his hands on the hood and lean in, chest inching close to the vehicle. Condensation built up in the air conditioning unit forms a puddle at his feet. I imagine it's the only moisture for miles. The car exsanguated us full up, having absorbed all we can. This one's called The Immaterial. After the abortion, I sat on my floral bedstead and burnt a scrap of paper with a name on it. Blew on the flame so it lapped up the scrap in one easy swallow. The counselor from the Unity Church had said, light what hurts you on fire and you'll be free of it. So idiotic, but I'd wanted a ritual for everything. Two years later, I felt so adult in my Argyle, sitting through a world religion class, boxy orange seats in a boxy gray hall, listening to my first college lesson. At Chinese funerals, gold or joss paper is burned. Anything lit is believed to rematerialize in the afterlife. Imagine burning an origami crane, flames quickening its wings, sending it straight to the realm of the immortals. I walked out gagging as if to swallow and still don't know what's in a gesture except the impossibility of placating you who do not exist, but for whom I am always responsible. Um, and this is the last one I'm going to read. Um, a more positive note, it's a love poem. Before a marriage. Please know I think of your skin as I'm falling asleep. And when I wake, I think of time in terms of your actions. The washing machine will buzz in two thinking walks around the block. Three sewn up shirts, an eighth of a problem set. You'll be here in two weeks. In that time, you could make 330 variations on doll. I cooked some yesterday. In 14 days, it will be starting to spoil. It bothered me that your sisters laughed when they learned I can't properly pronounce your middle name. The soft syllable at its center sticks on my tongue. I bought a bag of star anise from the Indian grocer, wanted to brag over the phone, tell you I had made the purchase in Gujarati, but I knew it shouldn't matter. God damn it, you don't even like it when I dye my hair with henna. I've watched you misspell Gandhi. Last night, I dreamed you were here. The bed grew wider the longer we kissed. It scared me the way it extended, a mathematical plane going on, off into forever and through. That's it. <laughs> So I have the pleasure of introducing Blake Kimsey, um, and it's, he's one of the easiest people to say nice things about. So, um, <laughs> so Blake Kimsey is a second year fiction writer working on a comic novel. That is what Blake told me to say about him. Um, but <laughs> of course there is much more to it than that. Um, I haven't read or heard as many of Blake's stories as I'd like to, um, but those that I have dwell on uh, the tragedy and strangeness that so often needle the humorous. Um, this dwelling that I mentioned is of the emotional sort. Um, Blake's stories keep you pleasurably trapped, laughing or growling in whatever box he's placed you in. Even as he writes, um, you underwater or into a cave. 
He walks these complicated lines without ever losing his compass bearing, without slipping into worlds that feel anything less than true. Please welcome Blake Kimsey. I was thinking back there, it'd be nice if I like, had a literary roadie on payroll here that could come up here and do this for me, but I don't. So we're just going to do it like that. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I sent um, Megan a couple of tales because I thought I was going to read some tales because people have been asking me how my fiction's changed now that I'm a dad. My five-month-old uh, daughter is here. It's the first time I'm reading in front of her, and I think it's kind of fun. And So I was like, well, I'll, I'll read some tales because I don't want her... I don't want to regale her with stories of pubic hair and stuff. Not against your poem, <laughs> but because there's pubes in this story that I'm going to actually read. So I'm not going to read uh, a tale or anything like that. Uh, I'm going to read this story. Um, I grew up in a small town in Texas where uh, all the signs had uh, bullet holes punched through them and stuff. And in our neighborhood, if you could call it that, there was a kid there. His name was Ricky Benson. And uh, we loved Ricky. He was, he was kind of the punching bag. Um, and just a funny kid. And so... Uh, when I started writing fiction, I liked, I wanted to start writing stories about Ricky Benson. And uh, after I sent my first Ricky Benson story to my brothers, they, I think they liked it, but they were like, you should probably change his name. Uh, because his name was Ricky Benson. Uh, so I changed his name to Ricky Jensen. And uh, so now I have a series of Ricky Jensen stories, um, and I've not friended him on Facebook purposefully, uh, just in case anything were to ever happen. Uh, anyway, this story is about Ricky Jensen. It's called Little Man, and um, so this is a 10-pager that's 30, not 30,000 words, it's 3,000 words, so, um, but it's bigger, so if, if the font's bigger, so if you're keeping track of how many pages I'm turning, it's, it's more than 10, but it's a 10-page story, okay? So, so this is called Little Man. You're like, that guy's a goddamn liar. Uh, okay. Ricky Jensen was a little shit, and that crooked, gap-toothed smile of his, the one his cute little baby teeth abandoned for large, yellowing buck teeth, was his little shit calling card. See him smile, see a textbook little shit. Yet it was his buzzed haircut that reduced his face to nothing but a mouth and a pimpled forehead that even his dog wouldn't lick and made you forget he had a set of eyes. He was a... He was a... We don't want that getting out on Facebook. Or... Yeah, I am. Uh... He was a damned child with gangly arms and legs and an air of little shitness who had no choice in the matter because it was a matter of DNA, plus corn syrup, plus a diet of microwavable foods, plus his father's suicide that made him the way he was. Terrible. Here he was at the tail end of summer standing on the oak tree, uh, on the oak tree line that banded his house on three sides, rigging a booby trap to prove once and for all to his freckle-faced, hairy-armed little sister Lily that she should have heeded his advice and kept away from his fort in the woods and the trails he'd hoed and whacked into place with their father's tools. Clearing the path was a hard-earned triumph for Ricky because the tools were rusted and crappy and the forest was thorny and overgrown and the job had occupied a full week of his summer. One page. There's going to be 16. Uh, uh, occupied a full week of his summer vacation. But he'd done it, the little man. He was just starting to get short curlies on his balls and light water-colored hairs pushing through the soft folds in his armpits. And if he looked at himself from a certain angle in the mirror, he could see peach hair on his upper lip that could justify, if he wanted to, a clean shave. Ricky's new body odor, which Donnie Perkins, the oldest kid on his bus route, said smelled like his fingers after touching a sweaty vagina, was part puberty, part soiled jean shorts, and three-day-old underwear. It proved he was on the cusp of running things around here, this little man who marked his territory in the inside of his fort with found nudie magazines and unearthed beer cans that were faded from years of sun and soil. What a feeling. Never mind the poison ivy that somehow got inside Ricky's butthole when he was claiming the land, making it itch like a whole tube of Grandpa's Icy Hot was slathered up and down his backside. This land, son of a bitch, despite what some might say about deeds and mortgages, was his. You had to have a penis to claim the forest, and he had claimed it. 
Ruki squinted and looked into the, up into the branches uh, where the lever and pulley system he had built was swaying with the limbs in the wind. He tied a rolling hitch knot around a sizable piece of limestone and hoisted it into the canopy high above, where it was sufficiently camouflaged amongst the brown leaves because there were no seasons in Texas, and the leaves didn't change colors. They simply and suddenly die one day before balding the limbs and blanketing the dirty beige grass below with a brittleness that crumbled and turned to dust when trampled underfoot. There wasn't such a thing as autumn down, as autumn down here. Only girls named Autumn who'd been felt up by Donnie Perkins. <laughs> Ricky, the little man, little shit, knew the block-shaped piece of limestone would certainly crush any child-sized or lily-sized or adult-sized skull except for his because Ricky would start wearing a maroon motorcycle helmet when he went to his fort just in case he tripped his own booby trap. He was proud of his work and the way he buried the tripwire under a mound of dirt and leaves. The only way he could trip his own trap, he knew, was if there is if he were crashing from a sugar high and somehow forgot himself in the kind of light-headed stupor that sometimes overtook him after drinking a jug of Kool-Aid or a liter of Coke. But that could never happen now because Ricky was smart and realized his good fortune. He had been out selling, had he been out selling cookies door to door, sorry June, uh, as a Girl Scout like his sister, instead of learning how to earn badges by tying knots, this booby trap might not uh, have ever been. Little man liked to thank his penis for the opportunity to avoid cookie sales because no adult ever bought a box of Girl Scout cookies from someone with a penis. To Ricky, penises were the ticket to the good life. <laughs> Uh, that's in there. Uh, Ricky circled his fort trying to find the piece of limestone from different, from different vantage points. He craned his neck and met the sun through the branches. He could see the glorious piece of limestone from almost anywhere, of course, because he knew where to look. But if Ricky were on a leisurely stroll through the woods or trying to sneak uh, into his fort, as Harry Lilly was prone to do, he might not notice the limestone at all. No one thinks to look for limestone anywhere but where limestone should be found. Ricky had no sympathy for trespassers, unless it was Donnie Perkins bringing a pair of girly underwear for them to sniff over a couple Coca-Colas on the rocks. After circling the tree enough times to convince himself even a superhero or a government spy plane couldn't find the limestone, Ricky decided to call it a day and retreat to his house where air conditioning and television and something brain-freezing and sweet like a dozen popsicles would be his reward. If his trap happened to ensnare a raccoon or a deer in the meantime instead of Lily, he was fine with that. All he'd need to do was reset the trap and wait until it fell on Lily, and he was happy to wait because he likes suspense and build up, the kind of feeling he got watching late night Cinemax after everyone else had gone to bed. When Ricky opened the fridge, the only popsicles left were the ones uh, from last month that had freezer burn and were stuffed under a box of frozen chicken breasts all the way in the back. He discarded these banana-flavored popsicles for a reason. They sucked. And now they were his only hope for something sweet and brain-freezing. And he hated having to play a forced hand, just as his dad had, had always said he hated having to play forced hands, which is why, according to Ricky's mother, he voluntarily left planet Earth. Ricky stood in front of the fridge with the door open, letting the chill escape, itching the spot where new hair was growing below his waist. The sound coming from inside his underwear was similar to when he had put a handful of cornflakes into a plastic bag and shook it about like a crude rain stick. <laughs> he liked the sound of itching hair, especially his new hairs with their short and stiff quality, a distinction he noticed with these new hairs as a self-proclaimed hair-playing musician. But these hairs were weak like newborn babies and prone to incidental plucking. Often, Ricky would free his hand from his pants to find one or two curly black hairs stuck under his fingernails, and then he would have to blow them away and make a wish as if they were eyelashes. <laughs> After coming to the conclusion that the banana pops were the only sweet treats in his house, Ricky pried the frost-encrusted sticks from their frozen grave, taking a bit of the chicken breast box cardboard with them. He, he immediately thought his brain needed a dose of television because it had been a few hours since the last dose of sitcom reruns and the woman judge show he really liked. There were stains on the carpet in the family room arranged in random little constellations in front of the television from soda or milk that would come shooting out of Ricky's nose any time he laughed at a program. The carpet smelled like used toilet paper because the juices from Ricky's sweaty butt would leach through his jean shorts and soil the carpet when he sat in front of the television, rocking back and forth with delight any time something was funny enough to cause him to rack, rock back and forth, which was quite often. <laughs> From a young age, Ricky was trained to laugh anytime a sitcom's laugh track gave him the cue, <laughs> even if he wasn't paying attention and even if he didn't get the joke. And it seemed as if Ricky timed his laughs according to how much liquid he was holding in his mouth. A little game he played so his mother would have to come in and 
pinch him on the cheek before scrubbing the carpet clean. It was true that Ricky never cleaned anything because he knew they were a poor family, so what was the point? His mother's motto when it came to toilet water was, if it's brown, send it down. If it's yellow, let it mellow. But Ricky didn't send anything down because at 11, he was already a conscientious objector, not to mention a little man. In fact, after Ricky's father blew his brains out standing on the unearthed cemetery plot he'd bought minutes before, Ricky assumed all male duties. He took out the trash, opened airtight jars of pickles, and made sure all the doors were locked at night. The only male thing he didn't do was sleep naked in the same bed with his mother and watch the 10 o'clock news and comment, as his dad always did, that if it bleeds, it leads. Oh, and he didn't have a key to the liquor cabinet, but what did he care about that when the popsicles in the freezer were free for the taking? Ricky could hear his mother breathing through her mouth and knew she was standing just inside the family room. Her name was Charlene, and she had halitosis, a big word Ricky didn't know the meaning of, but he did know that his mother had bad breath. She wore dull-colored pantsuits, even though she wasn't a businesswoman or a Democrat. The thing about pantsuits, Ricky's mom would say, is that they are always on sale at the outlet mall three miles up the road from their home, and a sale is always a good enough excuse to dress like a woman tapping on the glass ceiling, even, even if she isn't in business. The other thing about Ricky's about, about his mother's pantsuits was that a double whammy for Ricky was that Charlotte, uh, Charlene never wore a bra and the front seam of the pantsuit blouse was always placed just so the perfect breast divider. Ricky didn't like seeing his mother's boobs any more than the next kid, but any time the pantsuit seemed parted, like when she leaned over to pick up after him or when she would reach up to replace a light bulb, he had to concede that a motherly boob was better than nothing. <laughs> Can I take a drink of water after that? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta wash it down. <laughs> Ricky didn't like to be lorded over by anyone, especially his mouth-breathing mother, so he broke the ice without looking over his shoulder. What's for dinner, woman? Ricky asked. Ricky, what have we talked about calling me woman? Charlene asked, standing in the entryway. It's every man for himself tonight. There's hot pockets in the fridge. When is it not every man for himself? Ricky asked and, inched him and, and itched himself. I'd like a cooked meal every now and again. Then get a cookbook or a recipe online, little man. This isn't the Holiday Inn. After a moment, the heavy breathing stopped, and Ricky could tell from the reflection in the television screen that his mother was no longer standing behind him. Ricky considered the empty box of popsicles and realized it was already time to head back outside before it got too dark. He hadn't seen Lily in a while, and he knew if he caught her near the fort and if the booby trap hadn't already crushed her to death, then he would give her a titty twister because he knew how bad it hurt the little knobs forming on her chest. The sun was almost gone, and the trees were dark outlines of themselves, making it difficult to gauge their depth. Ricky couldn't hear anything because the ear flaps from his maroon helmet covered his ears, though he liked to imagine a pack of mangy wolves howling in the distance, possibly encircling Lily, slobbering and just about to pounce on her in a ravenous fit of hunger that could only be quenched with lily flesh. Ricky wasn't a scaredy cat, but he was carrying a flashlight in case he stayed out past dusk. When Ricky got to the fort, he shined the flashlight into the branches and saw the piece of limestone hanging high above. He loved it out here because it was his, a place his mother never cared to visit, and Lily had only been able to sneak into on one previous occasion. His father had built the fort with little more than a hammer and a level, and Ricky had assisted, handing him nails and small pieces of wood as needed. His father pruned a few of the branches with a chainsaw that howled and cut through the thick wood, and its very sound made Ricky feel like a man because he got to stand so close to his father and yell timber at the top of his lungs and he could taste the sawdust in the back of his mouth and it was at these times he wished his name was Junior. It only took four weekends to complete and the fort had been the talk of the neighborhood with its two floors and the open air deck at the very top and the dictatorial rope ladder that he could pull up at will to keep most everyone else out. But that was four years ago now, and the fort's wood had started to fade, and there was, a, there was water damage and wind damage, and the fort itself looked like a giant parasite clinging to the tree for dear life. Come to think of it, Ricky hated this fort and his father and thought Harry Lily, the evil spawn of Satan's loins, could have the damn thing if she wanted it so badly. But Ricky was keeping the nudie magazines, and he'd still give her new breast bumps a good titty twist if he found her trespassing. When Ricky looked up, he saw Lily and her hair-covered forearms coming his way. She blocked what was left of the sun, and her outline in that ratty sundress bled into the tree line. Her arm hair was standing on end in a whir of static electricity, golden in the fading light. She didn't look like anyone in the family, and even though they couldn't afford braces, Lily didn't need them, because her teeth had settled into her mouth as if God and Jesus had come down in a cloud car and set them with perfect godlike skill and dentistry, and then gave each other God and Jesus high fives that set off a series of thunderclaps around the world celebrating their very selective teeth-setting skills before heading back to heaven in the cloud car. <laughs> 
Ricky hated Lily's teeth and wanted to kick them in because he needed braces and the family couldn't afford them because the month before he was going to go to the orthodontist, that money went instead to a sleek-looking, pure-grained coffin for his father. And despite his best efforts, Ricky still couldn't get his upper lip over his top row of teeth. It didn't help matters that all the boys at school liked Lily. Ricky knew there must be a glitch in the universe because none of her suitors seemed to mind the braidable hair on her, on her arms, and those boys ribbed Ricky about her, especially that dickweed Donnie Perkins who didn't have a governor on his mouth and told Ricky what he'd do to Lily if given the chance to play spin the bottle or seven minutes in heaven at a co-ed party. Watching Lily defiantly walk toward his fort was one of those moments for Ricky that seemed to freeze in time, and everything started to happen in slow motion. The last time the world froze was when Ricky realized he'd just masturbated for the first time while watching the Spanish language channel late at night, and the warm goo coating his inner thigh was drying like wood glue to his skin, and he knew nothing like that had ever happened before, and he calculated that that moment he would be able to replicate that feeling for the rest of his life, and all it would take was naked boobs or a real girl or more late night Spanish television, and of of course, some rubbing. This frozen moment was different, was different, though, because it didn't tingle, and Lily was walking toward the pile of leaves hiding the tripwire, and Ricky thought he couldn't just stand where he was and do nothing, even with the hatred he felt for her. If he didn't quite know it, Ricky could feel that he was standing on the fault line of a philosophical conundrum, and at that moment, he couldn't reconcile how God and Jesus could fly around in a cloud car and fashion the limestone hanging high above and give Lily a perfect set of adult teeth and then allow the one limestone to destroy the other perfect teeth. Without thinking, Ricky shouted no and took off in a labored sprint with his head bobbling under the weight of the helmet. Ricky got to Lily and pushed her out of the way as she tripped the wire. When Ricky looked up, the limestone was hurtling toward his face and he had to admit he had an eye for stone and thought if the profession weren't going the way of the dodo, he might make an awfully good stonemason or, or quarry worker. Then he thought if the limestone hit him just right, he might have to get emergency dental surgery. So he smiled big and had just enough time to consider these woods and the fort and his lucky stars and how if his father could see him now, he'd realize he was a chip off the old block. And that's the story. Thank you. Thank you. I was hoping I brought a story that would trump the pubic mentions. And I did. Yeah. Oh, I've got more. I've got backup. Um, well, uh, I want to thank Skylight, too. I was here a couple weeks ago to hear Ramona Asabel read from her new book, and it, it's, so, it's so cool that they're letting us uh, come up here and, and, and uh, be aspirational uh, when we read. So, um, and I get to introduce Josh Cornwell. Um, I came into the program with Josh last year, and this will be my second time to introduce him, and uh, my fourth time to hear him read each time a privilege uh, greater than the last, for sure. Um, I've sat in my chair at these readings, my eyes closed, and listened to Josh take me around the world, capturing its vastness in the small truthful, truthful moments he finds in a tiny room or cramped train car, a moment in time hidden away on a pinprick place that most satellites pass right over. You will feel the rattle of the train, those rising cities pushing their way to seashore, lovers seeing the end even as they hold each other tight. You will also feel the devastating emotional weight that Josh threads into his poems, how he braids all of these things together, time, place, love, and maybe most of all, loss. When you listen to these poems, you find your heart in your ears. I love this man's work, and I'm happy to sit among you all and listen to him read today. So please help me welcoming Josh Cornwell. That was a wonderful introduction. I hope I can sort of live up to that. We'll see. Um, I have a sort of randomly glean collection of poems. I'm just going to read you with a uh, little introduction. Um, eh, these things, these poems are not particularly autobiographical, but they do draw on parts of myself and the experiences that I've had uh, thus far. And you'll probably sort of get a sense of that as I start reading them. So uh, this first one is called uh, Denizen. You told me once you knew I dreamed of running, framing myself always in relation to escape, how close the nearest exit, how quickest to fade from a room, the crowd. Did you read it in the eyes, the way my pupils flicked to corner, window, 
door. Do you remember our shared spaces? How in sleep the rattling fan called back the roar of half-forgotten trains, their lights spilled over open, empty landscapes? You'd stroke my hair, allow a nipple to be taken between the teeth, whisper things you'd felt or known, how the press of palms would fleck green paint from the railing of the star ferry off Kowloon. It was like that for a while. I'd rub your back, bring the flush of blood up against your skin, watch it fade. Sometimes I could almost feel the burden of time weighed against us accrue, our meals cooling on the floor, memories overlain, flesh answering flesh. Tweak this slightly here. Um, this is Epistles 2. It's kind of a companion piece to this first one. Do you remember those other mornings? How we'd rise together, catalog the change of places with our bodies, each crushed and tousled bed, blurred outlines of lesser cities. You never asked me how I felt, tonguing closer to the core of you, watching my breath press near invisible against the fine hair that dusts your belly, that slight shiver distorting form minutely, the way shimmering heat will make any landscape seem imagined. I wish I could make you answer, that cry come back lost among unknown faces. Some nights I dream of the places we may have been, cities piled up against the sea, their waters burning with reflected light. I dream and wake to unfamiliar mildewed ceilings, the heavy buzz and click of beetles. Is this my life, black on black, as the hair that fell against my hands, covered my eyes, blotted out all but the scent of you? Uh, this next one is actually a sort of travel poem. I spent a few months in Cambodia in 2011, and right after I got there, um, I came down with dengue fever, which really wrecked me. So the weeks immediately following that had this kind of like lurid, surreal quality to them, and I tried to kind of capture that in some more kind of imagistic poems. Um, I was working in an orphanage, and every afternoon after I would finish taking classes at one of the universities, we'd drive. Um, over the river and then down sort of through the slums along there and this poem is just kind of like an imagistic collection here. This is uh, Troy Changbar. They pasture cows under the bridge lit by twine-strung fluorescent bulbs and the guttering light of fires burning trash in heaps along the roadside. Each night leaving the sky was infernos of cloud, bright orange to bruised purple or solid black flashing white heat lightning with the intensity of strobe, Dara gunning the engine of the rattling tuk-tuk down the dirt path along the river. Flickers of light, weighed down wet heat, clinging smell of spice decay. Seen briefly, an old woman, wrinkled breasts bare, ladling water from a tall black jar. All right, this one is called uh, Loneliness. This feeling is bright and brittle. It shapes me as a vessel of glass is shaped by fire and breath, the surface stretched taut against the press of air. Leaning against the railing, I wish to fade, not to disappear from, but enter fully the world beyond the body, to merge with the dull hum of power lines or inhabit wholly within the radius inscribed by the flick of a night bird's tail, correcting for its own small weight in landing. Similar tone poem here, uh, untitled, which is lazy of me. I'm really bad with titles. They're usually abstractions are just kind of tacked on in the hope that they'll kind of work, but they, well, we'll see. This is un and this one's untitled, which is an egregious crime, for forgive me. Untitled. <laughs> Hear the moon, how it calls you, gathering shadow about the body, blue pools cast on silvered flesh that shift slowly like kelp beds out to sea. The sky is wide and stars are points far out, each a separate mote of lonely music ringing like a temple bell. Watch them settle in the hills. Getting there, four more, so just bear with me. Uh, this is meditation. 
It's in the clear intake of breath run gently ragged over white incisors slightly bared, the bunched hiss of cloth, bare flesh of the thigh catching the rougher skin of the palm pressing the dress up beyond the knee. That thrill in the body is sensed a distance off like the first dark flutter of a summer storm. Inevitable as weather, sex builds in the distant wet sheen of the eye, the moist warmth of lips broken apart to moan. Oh, these are my last two, actually. So these are both, um, in a really like cheery way to end, this is two poems about heroin, which I'm just going to like kind of uh, move through. These are not autobiographical, but they're sort of, <laughs> I swear to God. But um, here's two. Uh, this is On Heroin, 2009, for Ethan. Let me pry the hooks from your side. You've paid a debt of blood enough for now. When they set the needle in your vein, did you watch the way it spiraled, dark and sluggish in the chamber? In seeing, did you think of richness, a cake sticky with berries poised beneath the flash of teeth? Take your time. When I'm gone, they'll kiss the color to your face again and leave their precious parting smiles shadowed on your bruised lips. And this is my last poem, which is another companion piece to the one I just read. And this is actually a sort of a departure for me. I've been trying to work with some sort of uh, more structured form. So this is a kind of attempt at a fairly strict sonnet form, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of a, a word game that I've been playing. Um, and it's also about heroin. <laughs> so this is my last poem, uh, Overdose. As Jody blew ash from folded foil, what little use were you? Too fucked up to move, no thoughts of harm, another toil to occupy you. Sunsets glare upon the wall, the scattered patterns pinkish, warm, and building, like the six little white pills you'd layered, scoring each along their worn, imprinted edges, pressing tight until they split in two, the best to speed the high that took you hard, a come-up darkly light and heavy, count your breaths as not to die, that calm asphyxia, bright euphoric night. She settled back as slow as snow might fall, her sigh like wind in birches, thin and tall. That's mine. So I'm going to introduce our last reader tonight. And I actually have an introduction prepared for this. Note the difference. I'm sure it'll be distinctive. <laughs> but uh, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce Justin Lee, a second-year fiction writer in the program, whose work I've always admired. Uh, Justin writes stories that have a really unsettling sort of ability to get under your skin, uh, kind of tapping into the unconscious anxieties that we all have in the service of vivid, luridly unsettling narratives. Um, while the effects of Justin's fiction are immediately parent, apparent to me on a gut level, I find it difficult to sort of characterize the, the formal considerations that make his work so clearly his own. If I was going to try it, I'd probably say that uh, his writing is the end result of some crazy alchemy that combines imagination, horror, humor, and playful perversity with muscular hypnotic prose that always seem po like seems ready to kind of like leap off the page and bite you. Um, so I guess I just did that, but um, <laughs> um, I feel like I probably shouldn't spend too much time talking about Justin when I can just invite him up and have him sort of blow you all away with his own work. So Justin Lee, welcome. Thank you for that, Josh. Okay, I've got, uh, got a few short pieces here. Yep. Gotcha. Okay, I've got a few short pieces here. Uh, the first three are, I'll call them parables for lack of a better descriptor. Um, they're probably not parables. I can't, I can't quite call them prose poems because they're real poets here. And, <laughs> and they will call my bluff. Heresy. The conductor feels his wrist hitch on the air as the tall fat man in the tuba section huffs out low gut thunder in an unwelcome key. The sound cuts through the orchestra like wildfire wind and the other performers become unsure of themselves. Some falter. 
Lips are removed from reeds, fingers from strings and bows, mallets are lowered. Most watch the conductor. He knows the score, and with a flourish of pale hands brings the orchestra back to what has been written. But the fat man stands with his tuba and bleats deeply into it. He eyes the tuba section as if expecting them to join him. They do not. They are the most incensed by his brass bluster. So the man walks with his instrument through the assembled orchestra. He looks at the conductor expecting anger, but the old man looks only tired and mournful as he drops his arms and the music ceases. The tuba player continues with his own tune and walks off stage into a long side hallway and out of view. The sound of him continues for several moments, low and golden, proud and haunting, resonating through that small part of the orchestral hall until it fades into memory. No one could say his song wasn't beautiful. The creature as it waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. <laughs> this is the most arrogant title I've come up with so far. <clears throat> the world became terrible to behold. No one wanted to bring children into such a place anymore. It would have been barbaric. But it would also have been barbaric to refuse those children existence. So our women conceived and held their babies inside themselves for nine months, and then nine more, and then nine years more. Soon the children entered puberty. Hair sprouted in the warm womb darkness where there had been no hair. Unsounded voices deepened in the amniotic murk. Balls dropped. <laughs> Uteri ripened. Soon they began experimenting with their sexuality. Our women shook with the loneliness of their children. Something had to be done. The world was still terrible. Birth was not an option. So we gave them playmates. Our women pressed their bellies together for hours on end so their children could communicate in muffled gurgles and by improvised Morse code tappings against their uterine encasements. Their loneliness subsided, as did the shaking. We don't know how our children conceived children of their own. <laughs> the possible mechanisms were too unnerving to postulate in the open. Soon our women could feel their grandchildren kicking inside the wombs and wombed within them. Soon those grandchildren reached maturity, two degrees separated from the terrors of the world. They too became lonely. Their agitation agitated their mothers, whose, whose agitation in turn agitated our women. Again, bellies were pressed to bellies. The loneliness subsided. Then there were great-grandchildren. This went on for some time. Demographics were unremarkable. Roughly 50-50, male-female. Science advanced dramatically. But the world remained a rotting terror. No one aged anymore. But there were still ugly people, and so there were still unhappy people. Each generation, some of our women grew larger, but there were fewer each generation who did so. Those of our women who conceived boys first were the second to luckiest, terminating the sequence at its inception. The luckiest were the infertile ones. They were popular because they were comparatively slender. The unluckiest of our women were prone to conceive fraternal twins and endure their subsequent copulations to watch their bellies expanding and compressing like accordions. The world doesn't seem to be getting any better, so the generations bide their time in darkness Infinitely distending mounds of woman flesh sit like small volcanoes, building pressure. Someday, maybe, the generations will be ejected in a great rush. But the food is getting scarce, and those fleshy woman mounds are pretty immobile, pretty defenseless. We will probably have to eat them before they erupt. Our obedience to such necessities is part of why the world remains so terrible. Where's, where's my drink at? <laughs> Fez. Matthias walks swiftly down State Street, harried by the notion of giant eyes hiding inside the clouds. His face is warm with the glow of adultery, his body alternating warmth and cold and waves of memory and anticipation. 
He knows that someday he will grow tired of Susanna, that the affair will lose its flavor and cease to justify the lies and skulking. But he also knows that that day is a future thing, which is to say, a non-thing. And, and for Matthias, the consideration of a non-thing could never threaten something that, even if only for one white blinding instant, makes him feel like a god. He encounters the dog two blocks away, near his car. Matthias never parks too close to Susanna's flat for propriety's sake. The dog is large, covered in patchy shag like an old carpet, and stands in the open back of a meat truck. Its face is buried in a soggy mound of ground chuck. It is utterly delighted with the good things surrounding it. On its head, slightly atilt, sits a bright red fez with a golden tassel. Matthias finds himself furious with the dog. The idea of an uncomprehending beast in such a fortuitous position, <laughs> wearing such a nice fez, was intolerable. Why it was intolerable, well, Hey you, yells Matthias. Dog, get out of it. Damn it, get out of there. The dog's ears flinch and then fall still. It ignores Matthias. You can't be in there. It's not for you. To think if the driver should, much better uses for that meat. <laughs> Matthias realizes he has descended into Babel. Bracing his palm on the bumper, he climbs into the truck. He begins reasoning with the dog. He constructs a dialectic, condemning the dog for its unjust indulgence, and then pauses, arms folded, waiting for a counterargument. When the dog continues devouring the meat, Matthias tries pleading, offering delicious treats, bacon from his own kitchen. The dog pretends Matthias does not exist. Furious, Matthias enlists the help of bystanders. One by one, he leads them to the truck to plead with the dog. When they fail to convince it to even raise its head, Matthias calls for a delegation. <clears throat> he brings 10 men and another dog, albeit a very small dog, colored and on a leash, to help the shaggy dog see reason. The shaggy dog does not see reason. Determined to make the dog obey, Matthias slaps its shank. The dog turns confusedly, its fez nearly toppling off, to appraise Matthias. It returns to its meal. The delegation backs away from the truck. The little dog barks shrilly. Matthias huffs. I've tried polite discourse. I've tried reasoning, you brute. Now this. With a flourish, Matthias rolls up his sleeve and snatches the dog's back right leg. The dog tears around in a flurry of hair and flying fez, eyes glowing in the dimness of the truck. Taking its time, and with a look of uncanny canine satisfaction, the dog begins to rip Matthias to pieces. <laughs> got, uh, got one more. Hey, this is called Not My Blood. The sound is piercing and echoes down the alley. It raises the hair on your arms, defying the warm summer air the warm booze swishing through your veins. You've been out most of the evening with the other residents, offering libations to the great god Asclepius, celebrating the end of three years of frenzied, sleepless devastation at the hands of St. Vincent's Hospital, and now you're alone in your freedom, walking off your drunkenness in an unfamiliar part of town. Curiosity, impulse, that appalling Hippocratic sense of duty, these compel you down the steaming black alley in search of the screaming infant. You find him in a dumpster, the color of bruised skin, alone, filthy enough to have been there for some time. You cradle him in your arms, and the screaming begins to die. Looking into his eyes, you feel valiant, self-satisfied, sainted. I found him in an, an alley near 8th and Burgess, you explain to the incredulous, thunderously overweight officer behind her bulletproof window. He was in a dumpster, screaming. I see, she says. And you're certain, he, you're certain the child is not yours. Certain? Of course I'm goddamn certain. I'm not even married. I've not even been laid in two years, for Christ's sakes. You cannot believe what this woman expects of you, what supposedly the law requires of you. He looks like you, she says, a sardonic smile splitting her troglodytic face. <laughs> Do blood work then, you say, presenting your left arm, the one not occupied by a child. <laughs> That won't be necessary. She picks up the phone, dials. 
and after a moment begins speaking into the receiver. You strain to hear what she's saying, but her voice is too low. She nods her head and replaces the phone. Just as I expected, she says. IC 31-9-2-0.6. What? What in the hell is IC 31 Indiana code, she says. One sec. She swivels in her chair and extracts a massive book from the cabinet behind her desk. She quickly finds her page, runs her finger to the middle, and begins to read. IC 31-9-2-0.6. In the event of the above-described abandonment, where the agent of discovery is an emergency medical services provider or agent of rep or representative of state or city public services, custody shall revert to the agency of child and protective services until proper placement is assigned. Should agent of discovery not belong to any such official capacity, custody shall, retain, shall be retained by the agent of discovery. Excuse me, officer, you say, but I am an emergency medical professional. Where do you work, she asks. I just finished resident at St. Vincent's Hospital. Just finished, she says. <laughs> when and where will you begin working? St. Francis, you tell her, in August. August? In that case, you weren't an emergency medical services provider at the time of discovery, which means you will retain custody of the infant. You immediately ask to speak to a supervisor, a lieutenant, a what the hell ever, just someone, not you. The woman complies. After a short wait, a tall, balding man enters the room. He declares himself a captain and reiterates everything the obese officer told you, adding that within the week you will need to go to the courthouse and have an official birth certificate issued for your son. But he's not my blood, you say. Not my blood. The captain shrugs his shoulders. In terror, in your terror, your mind clouds over. You ask the man to hold the child so you can tie your shoes. He accepts the boy and you immediately run out of the building. You make it only a block before you are tackled and handcuffed. Back in the station, you are issued a fine for $1,000 and threatened with jail time if you don't take your son and return home. Leaving the station, it occurs to you that at some point this evening, you crossed a boundary. You entered into a new dimension. No, a new universe dedicated exclusively to your unhappiness. <laughs> a universe that won't give two shits about legal recourse. Inevitability settles over you. You walk home contemplating all the chromosomal horrors that may be swimming in not your blood. The infinitude of life ending, yours not the child's, recessives, from Acaropodia to Zunit K syndrome, even the numbered bastards, two trigloxicluteric acidura, and others. All perfect nonsense given the boy's generally healthy features. He can't develop stumped limbs and dragon scales, can he? No, but you're not yet sure he doesn't piss acid, which would certainly drive up diaper costs, you think, and suddenly, shit fuck, the dark visage of your impending financial ruination looms over you. Food, doctors, nanny, nursery, preschool, private school, college fund. You stop, lift the child before you inspect the sides of his head. There, just above the mushroom wrinkles of ears, you find them. Hiding beneath the baby flesh are faint, protuberant nubs, the beginning of horns. You've adopted a minotaur to dwell in the perfect center of your labyrinthine hell unfolding before you. <laughs> but wait, it was merely a trick of the streetlights. No horns, no minotaur, but a cretin all the same. It coughs suddenly. The cretin looks at you and giggles. You stare back into the forest green eyes of your soon-to-become Joseph Merrick monstrosity, and it occurs to you in this twisted moment that you rather like the name Joseph, that perhaps, no, yes, certainly, its name shall be Joseph. The years tear past at an unacceptable pace. Each lived instant seems insufferably long, yet their combined total leaves you a blinking, walnut-skinned retiree, wondering at how it all happened. Children, you come to say, children do this to you. <laughs> Joseph is in his mid-thirties now, lives in the rentable apartment over your garage, and sells audio equipment at some chain electronics store on the main drag of your suburb. <laughs> yes, you moved to suburbia. Made the resigned switch from internal medicine to family practice. Better schools, remember? More time with Joseph. More time to practice transcendental meditation and all your other failed efforts at choking back your bitterness over his existence. <laughs> You've aged prematurely. 
You're certain of this. Simple things, returning dishes to the cabinet, leaving the, re leaving the recliner to open the door, remembering where you placed the keys to your Volvo. Yes, you drive a Volvo. Urinating in under four minutes. These things are becoming difficult. The time comes at last when Joseph hesitantly presents you with the brochures. Sunnyside, The Oaks, Westridge Healthcare Center, other intensely palatable names. He has his sights on power of attorney, the house, 401k, even the Volvo. And what does it matter? Here, there, wherever, you're still rotting. You consent. Things progress quickly. He helps you into the car. The drive is longer than you expected. You're heading into the city. You can't remember the name of where he's taking you. Instead, your mind is trapped helplessly in anti-nostalgia, flashing through 30-some years of dissatisfaction. You feel suddenly guilty. Joseph has been a black hole, absorbing and compressing all the vast galaxy of your malcontent. You want to apologize, ask forgiveness, but you can't even speak. He cuts the engine in a strangely familiar part of town. It is night and the air is cold. You can't stand when he opens the door, so he carries you. The alley is dark, featureless, and smells of sweat and curry. You hear tiny splashes as Joseph steps through the puddles. The lid to the dumpster is open when you arrive. He sets you in gently and caresses your cheek once. Then he says, goodbye, pops, and is gone. There, cuddled tightly around the refuse, you begin to cry not because of the ugliness of your abandonment, but because, strangely, you feel you've come home. Thank you. Can we get one more sort of collective round of applause for all our readers tonight? And thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.